depending upon your perspective, Ian McGuire either had a dream job or a nightmare job. Ian McGuire was his job. He was a, a skydiving videographer. So his job was, uh, he, he worked at one of these recreational skydiving places and he would go up and the, the instructor would have like the paying customer strapped to him. You've seen, the, you've seen those and they would jump out of the airplane and Ian's job was to jump out also and video this terrified yet excited paying customer so that they would have that keepsake to take home, I'm sure, for an added fee. But uh, that was his job. He loved his job. He liked jumping out of airplanes. Uh, one beautiful April day, uh, it was, the conditions were perfect. Ian had already done several jumps that day. The last jump of the day went off just like the rest. The instructor and the, and the customer strapped to him. They jumped out of the airplane. Ian jumped out of the airplane. He filmed the free fall. This customer was especially excited, which made the whole thing, you know, even more fun. It was great. Then the, the instructor pulled the ripcord of, of their parachute, which deployed just right, and the instructor took off uh, above Ian. And it was only then that Ian McGuire realized he hadn't even put on his parachute. Needless to say, he did not survive the fall. That is a terrible story. I hesitated to even share that story because it's so awful. But how many, how many people here this morning? How many people we know? How many people in our area? How many people in our families? are living their life like in McGuire during that last jump. They think everything is fine. They think their life is exciting. It's fun. They're making as much money as they can make. They're doing what they want to do. And they have no idea they are free-falling 120 miles an hour toward an extremely violent end. How many people have no idea that there's a parachute that they're not wearing? How many people have heard of it and either don't think they need it, don't think they're falling, think they'll survive, think they have something else that will work? I mean, that was a terrible story I just told you, but let me tell you, Getting the end of your life and standing before a holy God without first having believed the gospel of Jesus Christ is infinitely more terrible than what happened with Ian McGuire. Today in the Book of Mormon, in Book of Mormon, where'd that come from? <laughs> can we re, can we rewind that? <laughs> We are not going to read from the Book of Mormon today. I have no idea where that one came from. If you speak publicly long enough, folks, 
You will say ignorant things publicly. Uh, today, in the book of what book? Anybody know what book we're going to be reading today? Can you help me out? Romans. Thank you. In the book of Romans today, the Apostle Paul is going to tell, tell us that Israel was living like Ian McGuire. 120 mile an hour free fall. And they had refused the parachute. We're in the middle of a section of the book of Romans where Paul is teaching us that because the overwhelming number of individual Jews, Israelis, had, had, had refused the gospel, they're, they're, they're lost. They are they're free falling and they don't know it. But they've, they've heard the gospel, the Jews of Paul's day. They, they know of Jesus of Nazareth. They just didn't buy it. Now, Paul's been telling us how that doesn't mean that God has turned his back on the promises he made to Israel. He's going to keep those promises. And so Paul's been telling us how it was always God's plan to just save a remnant, a few. And it was always God's plan to save bucketfuls of Gentiles. But why was this the plan? And why, in spite of all of their advantages, why would Israel refuse her Messiah? You ever wonder that? Like you read through the Gospels, why did none of the Jews get this? Like we can go back through the Old Testament, like Paul's doing in Romans, and say, look, I mean, it's said right here. This is who is coming. You ever wonder what made Israel reject Jesus? That's what Paul wants to talk to us about this morning. Because he's Paul, it'll take him a minute to get there. But that's where we're headed. Ultimately, um, Paul's still answering this question, why isn't God saving more Jews? And the ultimate answer to that is because they didn't believe. Because they rejected Jesus. But why? That's, that's what we want to talk about today as we read from the book of Romans. Chapter 9, verse 30, and we're going to read through the first four verses of chapter 10. And they read this way, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? Here's what we should say. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But they pursued it as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, or Israel, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but it is not in accordance with knowledge or with truth. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, they did not subject themselves or submit themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's our passage this morning, and, and Paul starts this passage by asking this question. What shall we say then? So here's what he's saying there. What conclusion should we draw from what Paul has, in the near context, recently been telling us? He's been telling us about God is saving Gentiles by the bucketful, and he's only saving Israelites or Jews just in a little sprinkling, a smattering. What conclusion should we draw from that? Paul says, here's the only conclusion we can come to. The Gentiles, which is everybody who's not an Israelite, okay, non-Jews we would say today. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it. And Israel who did pursue righteousness didn't attain it. That's the conclusion. Why is that the conclusion Paul thinks he has to draw? Because the requirement for eternal life is righteousness. It just is. You want to go to heaven when, when your life is over? You want, you want to gain eternal life? Here's all you need. You need to be righteous. Jesus said this. He told a crowd one time, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting in the kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees were the, were the best rule followers in Israel. Jesus, they don't have the requisite righteousness. Psalm 118 says, the righteous are the only ones who are getting through God's gate. You want to go to heaven? Got to be righteous. But Paul says, the Gentiles who I'm telling you, these people who are in the church, not every Gentile, but these Gentiles who have been rescued by God, saved by God, redeemed by God, they are going to heaven. So what what conclusion should we draw? They found righteousness when they weren't even looking for it. That's what Paul says. The Gentiles were not even pursuing righteousness, and they obtained it. And when Paul says that the Gentiles were not, these saved Gentiles in the church, they were not pursuing righteousness, Paul is not saying that there weren't any Gentiles who were trying to be good. That's not what Paul means by pursuing righteousness. Very important to understand, and I'll tell you why later. It's very important to understand, Paul is not saying the Gentiles who are saved are the ones that were a real mess, like a hot mess. They're the, 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 the worst. They weren't even trying to be decent people. That's not what Paul's saying. Not at all. There, no, there weren't any moral Gentiles. There weren't any decent Gentiles. No. They weren't pursuing righteousness in that they didn't know the one true God. They weren't pursuing the righteousness He will require for, for me to gain eternal life. They weren't concerned about that. Why? They didn't even know that God. The Gentiles, the religious one, ones among them, they were going to these weird temples and making weird sacrifices in front of weird statues. And they were polytheists. They, had, they, they believed all of these things were different gods that controlled different things and they fought amongst one another. The gods did. That was their belief. Paul says they weren't even on the right track. 
and they obtained righteousness. How'd they do that? They obtained righteousness that comes by faith. How did these Gentiles get righteousness by faith? Paul doesn't tell us today. Because he's already told us. That's the purpose of the book of Romans. The gospel is how these Gentiles were saved. Righteousness that comes by faith. Justification by faith. Beginning in Romans 3.21 through the end of Romans chapter 4. There's lots of sermons you can find through our website where Paul explains how, how you get righteousness by faith. It comes from believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when he died, he was taking the punishment you deserve. When that happens, his righteousness gets placed on your account. Paul's been there. So his question today that he's going to answer is not, how did the Gentiles get this righteousness they weren't even looking for? He's been there. Paul's question today is, how did the Jews miss it? Why did the Jews reject it? Israel, even though they were pursuing righteousness. They knew the God of Israel. They knew Yahweh. They knew his rules where he laid out, here's what perfectly righteous human behavior would look like. They knew it and they were trying and they didn't get there. And the Gentiles who weren't even trying got there when they believed in Jesus. This is part of what turns Israel off to the gospel. This is part of what makes Israel reject the gospel. Because Paul blows into town with this message of righteousness before God. And these Gentiles believe in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you've got it. You now bear the requisite, the required righteousness to enter eternal life. And the Jews are like, wait a minute. That guy you're talking to didn't even believe in God a week ago. He hasn't even tried to do the law. I've been trying my whole life. And you tell me I'm not in the kingdom. And this guy, this clown, let me tell you about his life. He's a mess. He doesn't even believe in our God. And you tell him he's righteous and I'm not, then I'm out. I can't go along with a message like that. But Paul says that's the conclusion that we have to draw with wise God saving bucketfuls of Gentiles and a sprinkling of Israelites because the Gentiles believed. And the bulk of Israelis refuse. They're still trying to obtain righteousness by works. Paul said, well, we'll get there to what Paul said. But Paul's main question, again, is not how did, the, how did the Gentiles get righteousness? Paul's main question is how did Israel miss it? Why? Okay, so the conclusion is Gentiles believed Israel didn't. But why not? Why did Israel reject Jesus? That's Paul's question at the beginning of verse 32. Answer begins this way. Paul says, because they, that's Israel, they pursued it, that's righteousness. They were trying to get, Israel knows they've got to be righteous to get to 
eternal life, get to heaven. But they pursued it not by faith. They're trying to get righteousness as if this were possible, Paul says, by works. Paul was really clear in chapter 3. Paul said, for we maintain. So this is foundational, bedrock, Christian teaching. We maintain that man is justified. That means declared to be righteous, deemed to be righteous by God. Man is justified by faith apart from works. Israel is still pursuing righteousness, not by faith, but by works. That's part of their problem. Because of that, Paul says, and then Paul in verse 33, in this part right up here, this is a quotation from two different places in Isaiah. Paul takes two places from the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ, puts them together to say this. And pay attention to what Paul really says here. Why did Israel reject Jesus? Paul says, God told us, this is God speaking. God said in Isaiah, look, pay attention. Looky here, behold, I am laying in Zion in Israel a stone, a rock that will cause people to stumble, a rock that will make them fall. Yet anyone who believes in him, so this rock is a him, will not be put to shame. That rock is Jesus. The rock, Jesus as the rock. Jesus was supposed to be the cornerstone upon which the builders built, right? It's supposed to be the foundation of Israel's faith, Israel's nation, Israel's life. Instead of building on that stone, what does God say Israel did? They tripped and fell over it. Just from this verse, why though? Who caused Israel to stumble? Based on Romans 9.33. Who did this to Israel? God did. Just as it is written, look, check this out. I am putting a, 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 in Israel a rock that I know will cause people to fall down. I know Israel's not going to build on the cornerstone I put in Israel. Why in the world would God, the Father, send Jesus, the Jewish, Israeli Messiah, the Christ, knowing his own people would not believe in him? That was God's plan. Why would he do that? You want my fullest answer on this? I'm not really sure. I just know he wasn't taken by surprise when it happened. You know that, right? God didn't send Jesus to earth and didn't wring his hands thinking, oh, I hope they treat him. I hope they treat my boy good. He knew what was coming. Isaiah, 700 years beforehand, let us know that was God's plan all along. Why? Here's my best stab. Here's my best guess. Salvation was always by faith alone. God wants to save many. So he sends Jesus to his own people, the people that know God the best, that have the most information about him, that have the most rules to know what behavioral righteousness looks like. And the people that know God best 
refuse the Savior. And then God saves a bunch of Gentile lunkheads like the rest of us that don't, didn't know anything about God to show salvation is through faith alone. You can't try it like Israel. I think that was God's plan. Well, that was the reason for God's plan. But Paul still hasn't really answered our question. From a human perspective, why did the Jews reject Jesus? Sort of theologically speaking, from a bird's eye view, God knew it was coming. God was involved in it. But Israel, an individual Jew, cannot have this excuse. Well, God made me stumble. God made me reject him. No, he didn't. Why did Israel reject Jesus? Paul's getting closer to telling us why. But he's not going to tell us yet. He's going to tell us in verse 3 of chapter 10. But first, in the first verse of chapter 10, Paul just wants to make, he wants to be very clear. He wants to make sure, even though it pains him to say this, that there's no one out there thinking Israel's okay with God. So in verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God on, on behalf of my fellow Israelites is for their salvation. Why would God pray? Why would Paul pray to God for Israel's salvation? There's only one reason. They're not saved. Right? They're lost. They are free-falling 120 miles an hour, and they've refused the, par the parachute. That's why. Paul doesn't want to leave any doubt that, hey, these are good people. They're trying hard. They believe in God. Why did they reject the parachute? Paul's almost ready to tell us. But before he tells us what the reason was that made Israel reject Jesus, he wants to first tell us what the reason wasn't. In Romans 10.2, Paul tells us the reason why Israel did not, why the reason wasn't that Israel rejected the Messiah. Paul says, for I can testify, like I'll, I'll raise my right hand, swear the oath, and testify in court that Israel is zealous for God. You know what their problem is not? It's not that they're not good people who believe in God and try really hard to make God like them. That's not their problem. You know why that is a really important truth to get your mind around? Notice, Paul's, Paul doesn't say, you want to know what Jews are unsaved? The bad ones. The ones that never go to the synagogue, they don't go to the temple, they don't do the sacrifices, boy, those Jews are unsaved. But, you know, I got some of their friends, they're good people. They're trying really hard. You know why that's a really important thing to understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying the good ones are lost. Because if you and I got a clipboard and went around doing the census in our area and we asked people, which one of these religions are you? In our area, what percentage of the people would check the box for Christian? 95? 
then if you ask him, on what basis will you enter eternal life? What would they say? You know what you'd hear a lot of? I try to be a good, upstanding person. I try to give, try to I'm generous. Man, I'll stop anything to go help somebody else. I'm a decent, upstanding, conservative American. That's what, we would, that's what people say. Paul's saying it's not enough. It's like I got cousins. I got family who know God and try with zeal, with passion to do what he wants. And Paul says they are free falling to their destruction because there's only one parachute and they ain't wearing it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those traits that I just mentioned. There's not. They're great. They're just not enough to make God say, you are righteous. You have the requisite righteousness to enter eternal life. Anyone, anyone, anyone who thinks God is going to be okay with him or her at the end of their life because they've been a good enough person is missing the truth about what sin does to our relationship with God. Folks, I am, I've done a number of funerals and it's heartbreaking to me. I do a funeral and the best thing we can say is, oh, he would stop anything to go help somebody. Such a good dude. Paul says, their zeal is not in line with the truth. Man, I chuckle at that. You have any idea how offensive that line would have been to a religious Jew in Paul's day? You know, when, when Paul gets chased out of synagogues and stoned nearly to death, I feel like it's, he said stuff like that. Someone would respond to that. What do you mean my zeal for God is not in line with the truth? I'm following the inerrant, inspired word of God written down in the law. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm pursuing. How can you tell me my zeal is not in line with the truth when I'm following the scriptures, Paul? Paul's... Paul would say something like, well, the truth problem isn't with the law. Your truth problem is that you think you can follow the law. Again, anyone, thinks, anyone who thinks they can be okay with God based on how they live, the truth problem that they're having a problem with is, is how much their sin has separated them from God. Do you know what the bridge illustration is? Are you familiar with the bridge illustration? It looks something like this. You ever seen something like that? It's a great way to share the gospel with somebody. You draw a cliff on this side and you write you or you write us. This is great because you can, you can write it on a napkin in a restaurant with somebody. Right? You draw this cliff and you write this is you or this is us over here. You leave a gap and you draw God on this cliff over here. And this, what creates this gulf, you don't draw the cross yet. You, what, what creates this gulf in between us and God is our, it's our sin. And the only thing that can bridge that gap 
is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a great illustration. It's a good way to share the gospel. But if it has a weakness, here's what it is. It looks like that dude might be able to make it across that gap. Right? If we're going to do this justice, and I'm not suggesting that you do this, but so you're in the cafe, and I was trying, I was going to use the bridge illustration. Here's what we should do. I should draw the first cliff on a napkin and write us. I should put you in my pickup, and we should drive to like the southern tip of Mexico. We should get out of my pickup and draw the other cliff and write God. There's our problem. Because it seems like this guy could do a little dirt work and fill this in. Or he could get busy. He could get busy building some sort of bridge. Or he should stretch out and limber up and maybe he could jump across. And see, my religious stuff I do, the good stuff I do, closes that gap. I'm just oh, I'm so close. God surely won't let me splat in his wrath after my free fall is over. If I'm this close, that's what's not in line with truth. We're not close. We are not close to God's righteousness. I might be a little more righteous than you. You might be a little more righteous with me, than me. As far as like human moral standards, there are some people who sin more than other people. There just are. There has to be. But it's like, I might be this moral, this righteous. You might be this righteous. God is infinite righteous. We're not close. That, when Paul says their zeal is not in line with the truth, that's what Paul's saying. They have this zeal for the law and they believe the lie that they can get to God based on their own effort, their own goodness, their own religious things, their own self-discipline. That's the lie. And after all of that, Paul is finally ready to tell us, well, then why didn't Israel just accept Christ? Believe in Jesus. That's Romans 10.3, where Paul says, for ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they, that's why they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see what Paul says their problem was? They ignored this righteousness that comes from God. Israel, religious Jews, they didn't want anything to do with what's called an alien righteousness. And I don't mean, when I say that, it doesn't mean it comes from outer space or Martians or something. It just means it comes from someplace else. Religious Jews didn't want God to give them this righteousness that he gives to undeserving people. That's what the gospel does. They didn't want that. They wanted God to declare, to look at their life and declare that they were good enough the way they were. They didn't want Jesus' righteousness placed on their account. They wanted God to look through their account and say, yeah, this is good enough. They wanted to establish a righteousness of their own. That's what keeps people from accepting Jesus. You know why they refused the parachute? They didn't know they were fallen. Or they thought they could fly on their own. 
That's what made Israel stumble over Jesus. You know, the only, the only way anyone accepts the gospel is by first accepting that, that I need rescued from my unrighteousness. I say this periodically, but I'll probably never stop saying it. It is important that we repent from sin. Okay, please don't. It's important that we repent from sin. Wait till chapter 12. We'll get there. But before I can accept the gospel, I need to repent of my righteousness. I need to repent. Change my mind about the idea that I have righteousness of my own. I need to repent of the idea that the gap's not that big between me and God. I can build a bridge. I can do the dirt work. I can do religious things that will help me get across. No, no, no. I need a rescue effort that is all his. I don't need a little bit of help. I don't need a boost. I need like CPR and the little shocking paddle things. And Israel, that's too hard, that's too jagged of a pill for Israel to swallow. This is why the gospel has always gotten more traction among just broken, down and out people. That's why Jesus was constantly talking to prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors. And the more moral people in his society didn't have time for him. Because you will not accept the Savior until you understand you need saved, rescued. We want a helper. We want a counselor. We need a Savior. That's why they wouldn't submit to God's righteousness. That comes only as a free gift. And verse 4 is where Paul finishes Paul said that they're not in line with the truth. Here's the truth about Christ that they're not in line with. For Christ is the end of the law with the result that there's righteousness for everyone who believes. What does Paul mean that Christ is the end of the law? There's some different ideas about what Paul could be meaning. Paul, Paul might mean this, and this is true. Paul might mean Jesus is like the finish line of the law. He's the one who completed the law. All those sacrifices in the temple system pointed to Jesus, and he did all those things. And so he finished the law, completed the law, became the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he is the end of the law in that way. But here's what I think Paul is saying. That's all true. But what I think Paul means by saying this here is, Christ puts an end to the impossible task of trying to gain righteousness through my behavior, through my morality, through religious observances, through my self-discipline, through all of those things. Christ puts an end to my impossible task. And the result of that is there is righteousness available and attainable for everyone who, what's that word right there? For everyone who believes. Believes. If I'm going to try to be righteous before God based on my behavior, the, the, the standard is perfection. It's perfection. Under the gospel, Jesus becomes my perfection. 
And I just have to believe that what he, that he did enough. He stood between me and the wrath of God. Excuse me. <coughs> like, he jumped out of the plane without the parachute on my behalf. He took the punishment I deserved. And the only requirement for me and for you to have the righteousness that God requires is first, we have to stop trying to earn what God will only give. As long as I think I am still doing this and he helps me, I have to stop trying to earn what God will only give as a free gift. Again, that doesn't mean I don't try to be good later. Come back for chapter 12. We'll get there. So I have to stop trying to earn what God will only give. Second, I have to believe, I have to understand that my sin, my own sin, has created a chasm between myself and God that I could never bridge. And third, I have to believe that Jesus Christ will rescue me based on what he did at the cross and the empty tomb. There is, boy, is this good news. There is righteousness for everyone who believes. There's no righteousness before God for anyone who tries to do righteousness on their own. We must approach God like old Augustus Toplady did. You know who Augustus Toplady was? He's the guy that wrote the lyrics to our closing hymn this morning, Rock of Ages. Look at what he wrote. He just nails this. He says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save. And save by grace. And he starts the next verse this way. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Do you see what he says there? He said, it's not stuff I can do that can fulfill the law. I can't do it. Even if my zeal, my passion for being good never took a break, respite is break. It's a rest. Even if I never took a day off from trying really hard to be good, and none of us can say that, but even if that were true, and then even in the few times I made a few mistakes that I never stopped crying and being really sorry and being tore up for all the dumb things I've done, and I just, I either worked really hard to be good or cried for all the things I've done wrong, even if I did that 24 7, 365, all that could never erase my sin. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We started this morning with a rather morbid illustration of a guy jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Folks, we are all falling. We are. Well, 
Pastor Matt, if I was falling like that, I would know. Oh, really? You are spinning at approximately 700 miles an hour right now. You are rotating around the sun at approximately 67,000 miles an hour right now. Did you know that? Because I didn't. I had to Google it before church. But it's true. And you are free falling into the courtroom of the God of the universe at 120 miles an hour. And the parachute is right I just described it as best I could. You just have to believe he did everything you needed done for you to be okay before the God of the universe. You cry out to him and he will give you the parachute and it will work. Why would anyone refuse that? You know why? Because we don't believe we're falling. We believe we'll have, we have some other kind of parachute that'll work just as good. Or we're crazy enough to believe we can flap our arms hard enough that, our, that, that we can fly on our own. That's trying to save yourself through moral righteousness. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this passage that where you show us why some other people rejected Jesus as Savior. And God, I just see so clearly it's the same for us. It's why so many of us reject Jesus or just ignore Jesus or pretend that we don't need Jesus because we don't realize we're falling into your hands. We're falling into judgment and condemnation We believe we can fly on our own. We believe we'll survive the fall. We believe we're close enough that you would never condemn us, but your word says otherwise. God, if there's someone here that you are working in their heart, you are stirring in their heart to put on the parachute, God, I pray that you would encourage them to just cry out in the quietness of their own heart. God, save me. God, I need you. I believe in Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And thank you for the promise that if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Thank you for the gospel and for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.